are listening to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. True Crime Twins is distributed by Glassbox Media and is part of the Crawlspace Media family. Welcome back to True Crime Twins, where we use our academic and occupational backgrounds in criminology and medicine to bring you crime stories each week. I'm Chloe. And I'm Melina. Thank you for joining us for another week of true crime. Today, we are talking about the crimes of Charles Manson and his group. Many crimes were committed by the Manson family cult, but the ones that we will be focusing on are the Tate-LaBianca killings that occurred between August 8th and 9th, 1969, which was a series of events that effectively ended the swinging 60s, like it was the end of the decade. Like all of a sudden it was dark and like bring on the 70s because this is just bleak. It was a horrible time. People were terrified in the Los Angeles area. Basically, two separate home invasions occurred. The first one occurred on Cielo Drive in the Benedict Canyon neighborhood of LA, which targeted a house that happened to be rented by a celebrity named Roman Polanski. You may have heard of Roman Polanski. He is a filmmaker and director who is in France now, and he's been in France for a long time, ever since he evaded justice after being accused of sexually assaulting a 13-year-old girl who he had over at his house. So that's just a whole other thing. But it just happened to be his house, and at the time, he was married to an actress who was sort of an up-and-comer named Sharon Tate. She happened to be eight and a half months pregnant with their child. She had a few friends over. One was Abigail Folger, who was an heiress to the Coffee Folger fortune. Her boyfriend, Wojciech Frykowski, Jay Sebring, who was a celebrity hairstylist. He was also sort of an up-and-comer, but this was like a star-studded circle here. Also killed, not in the same house, but on the property, was a young man named Stephen Parent, who was visiting the caretaker who lived on the guest house of that property that night. It was a brutal killing that was specifically planned to incite maximum terror. Late at night, on August 8th, 1969, three women and one man from the Manson family cult headed to Benedict Canyon to the Tate residence at the command of Charles Manson. He instructed the man, whose name is Charles Tex Watson, to take the women to the house and destroy everything in it and kill everyone there and make it as gruesome and witchy as possible. It is unclear if Manson was specifically targeting this house because of an alleged connection that he had. He felt scorned because he felt like he deserved to be a successful musician like the Beach Boys, like he had a connection with Brian Wilson. And some way, somehow, distantly, this involved this specific residence on Benedict Canyon. It's unknown if he knew exactly who was residing there, but it just so happened to be like this Hollywood dinner party, so to speak. It was a group of four friends that were young, had their whole lives ahead of them. They went out to eat at a Mexican restaurant and then came home and they were all kind of chilling separately when the home invasion occurred. So it's unclear if they were specifically targeted or if it was just the house, but he told Tex to go to the house and he brought along 
Susan Atkins, known to the group as Sadie, Patricia Cranewinkle, known to the group as Katie, and Linda Kasabian, who was a relatively new member. She was the driver because she was the only one in the group who had a valid driver's license. She claimed to not know what was going on, but each of the women were given knives and dark clothes to change into. But it seems as though they weren't really sure of what the plan was until they got to the property and Tex instructed them to break in. When they got there, they cut the telephone wires and they climbed over a fence and snuck up the hill and they went in through a window. Everybody was kind of off doing their own thing. Wojciech Frykowski was asleep on the couch. He was woken up by the intruders and he was so confused. Like, what time is it? Like, what are you doing here? And Tex said, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. Linda Kasabian waited outside. She was a getaway driver slash the lookout. She ended up being the state's star witness against the killers because she didn't actually do anything, even though she was there. It's a very strange situation. Basically, Sadie and Katie gathered the other house guests into the main room. So a very pregnant Sharon Tate was standing next to her good friend, J.C. Bring, while they were getting tied together by the same rope and they were starting to get like hung over one of the banisters while tied together, like around their necks. And J.C. Bring objected to the rough treatment of Sharon because she was so obviously heavily pregnant. Tex shot him non-fatally, but he was wounded. And the terror of that room just instantly increased. And Tex even said, you're all going to die. And then chaos ensued. I think that Abigail Folger had already given up whatever cash she had in her wallet. I think it was like 50 bucks. But as they were trying to tie up Wojciech Frykowski, they were clearly amateurs. These were like kids in their young 20s. They've never really orchestrated this type of attack before. She was trying to tie this huge man's arms together with like a dish towel or something like that. But then he started attacking her because this is like a 5'5", 110 pound girl that's literally trying to restrain this guy with a dish towel. So he started to fight back. And when he started to fight back, Abigail bolted out the back. Basically, he's pulling Sadie's hair and she's stabbing at him at his legs with the knife. And then Tex intervenes and starts beating him ruthlessly. But this is like a major struggle. This is what happens in the view of Linda Kasabian. She's standing outside of the house and she's hearing these ungodly screams that she knows has to be from something really terrible and violent. She sees a big man who's covered in blood appear at the doorway. This is Rykowski. They make eye contact and Linda claims to say, I'm so sorry, please make it stop, which I think is just, I don't, I can't say what she was thinking, but how is he going to make it stop? (laughs) He's clearly the one being attacked. Apparently after this happened, she sees Tex come up behind him, beat him with the butt of whatever gun he had. This was just a brutal, ruthless assault. She then sees Abigail bolting across the lawn in her white nightgown, and she sees Katie, Patricia Cranewinkle, charging at her like as fast as she can, like a linebacker, and she tackles her, and she just stabs her repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. In a certain point, her knife even bends, and then she calls Tex for help, and then he finishes her off. So basically, I think that all of these victims were technically killed by Tex, even though both of the women also stabbed people he was personally responsible for the deaths of each of them so sharon is still she's frightened but she's unharmed she's begging sadie 
to let her go or to let her have the baby and then kill her. She allegedly said, bitch, I have no sympathy for you. It's unclear exactly because at the time, Susan Atkins, a.k.a. Sadie, proudly confessed while she was in prison for a separate crime before the family was caught for this. They were caught because of her because she was blabbing and bragging because there were like immature kids and she thought it was really cool apparently. But she took responsibility for killing Sharon and Sharon was stabbed like all in the abdomen, stomach area. So like where the baby was and there were no survivors. I unfortunately forgot to mention before all this happened, Stephen Parent, the friend of the caretaker, he was leaving as the killers were coming in. Tex went up to the window and pointed his gun at him. And the young man said, please don't kill me. I promise I won't say anything. Because clearly I think he made the connection that he saw something that he wasn't supposed to see. And he had a major defense wound on his wrist that actually sliced off his wristwatch from a slash that Tex made. And then he ended up shooting him and killing him. So For some reason, the occupants of the house did not hear this. They weren't alerted, but this happened just before they actually went into the house. Jay Sebring died. He was shot at least once, but also stabbed many times and beaten. His cause of death was loss of blood. So none of the wounds that he had were fatal necessarily. He suffered. He died a slow death. The next morning, I believe it was the housekeeper that came and discovered all the bodies Roman Polanski was out of town and was not considered a suspect. Frykowski was actually his friend. They were both Polish people that had American significant others, I guess. I guess they bonded over that. Similar circles. And now, a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Now back to the show. In the commission of the murders... Susan Atkins wrote on the outside of the home, in Sharon Tate's blood, the word pig. Roman Polanski, Sharon Tate's husband, was later criticized for posing for an article in front of the message written in blood, in his wife's blood. He defended his actions and said he was trying to shock the public in an effort to identify the then unidentified perpetrators of the act. He criticized the media for never talking about how good Sharon Tate was. Something ironic about the crime is that some aspects reminded people of his film, Rosemary's Baby. The movie was about a pregnant woman whose unborn baby is sold to the devil by the baby's father. And she, so she basically gives birth to the devil. Manson Crimes definitely had sort of like a satanic panic effect on people with the writings on the wall with blood. That wasn't the first time a separate murder before this. They actually did the same thing and they happened to do the same thing again with the next crime, the murder of the LaBiancas. Lino and Rosemary LaBianca were middle-aged grocers who lived a middle to upper middle class life. They had a nice big family. They lived in a pretty nice house. They were sort of just living a quiet life. And they were like the kind of people that nobody had anything bad to say about. They were just good people who were productive in society. And this was completely random. That night, Manson joined the gang when they were on the prowl for murder victims because he thought that the Tate murders were very sloppy. Everything kind of 
went out of control and chaos ensued during that crime. And it was just, there was no order. So basically he was like, I'm going to teach you guys how to do it right. I'm going to show you how it's done. On the way there, Manson had this instinct or impulse to shoot somebody that had pulled up next to them at a light. At the last second, he drove off, like literally right before he was about to do it. He picked the LaBianca residence and had his family wait in the car. He went inside and tied the married couple up. He woke them up and he had them tied up in the same room and told them that they weren't going to get hurt as long as they cooperated. He then left and sent Tex, Katie, and a woman named Leslie Van Houten inside to commit the murders. He drove off with Sadie, Linda Kasabian, and Charles Grogan. They were looking for their own victims, but they didn't end up killing anybody, mostly because Linda Kasabian actually thwarted one of the efforts. She like purposefully went to the wrong door of an intended target, and then they just ended up not doing anything. But the murder that did occur by Leslie, Katie, and Tex occurred when they went into the house with the already bound LaBiancas. They separated the couple. They brought Rosemary into her bedroom. Lino stayed out in the main area. Katie began stabbing Lino along with Tex. Katie had left a carving fork in his exposed belly and had carved into his stomach the word war. Rosemary could hear her husband being murdered from the other room, and she began to struggle. She had her face covered, but she was so hysterical that she just kind of grabbed at anything that she could get at. And she grabbed a lamp and started swinging it at Leslie, and she called Tex for help. They kind of got her down, and Katie and Tex stabbed her a bunch of times. Tex apparently handed a knife to Leslie and said, do something. Sort of like a way for everybody to get their hands dirty. And then she proceeded on stabbing Rosemary in the back many times. And it's unclear whether or not she was already dead or not. But I guess it doesn't really matter. She was still willing to stab somebody for no reason. Tex, Katie, and Leslie made themselves at home after the murder. After Katie wrote on the walls, Helter Skelter. She misspelled Helter, H-E-A-L-T-E-R, referencing... The Beatles song on the White Album, which bore a lot of significance for the Manson family, that was like their thing. It was like their Bible in a way. They're heavily influenced by them, but wrote Helter Skelter, Death to Pigs. A third message written on the wall in blood was Rise. I'm not quite sure of the significance of that. The pig motif that occurred in the Tate LaBianca killings, as well as the Hinman murder, which happened before this, I mentioned there was also messages on the wall in blood. That message said political piggy. The Tate murders said pig. And the LaBianca murder said death to pigs. They were trying to make it seem like there were Black Panthers or radical Black people that were trying to start a race war. This turned out to be Charles Manson's motive to do these murders. He wanted to cause chaos and blame it on Black people so that there would be a race war between white and black people and then the white people would win and while this was happening they would all hide the family in the desert and come out when it was all over this was the main motive which makes absolutely no sense but this is what charles manson had in his head of what was going to happen who knows if he even actually believed it or not or if he was just 
seeing what he could get away with. For some reason, this group of people were so drawn to this man's every word. This man was a five foot two gremlin looking charismatic fucker. He like was an ex-con. He was in prison for more time in his life than he was a free person. He was born without a name, no name Maddox. His mother was a 16-year-old sex worker who neglected him. He was robbing gas stations and stealing cars in middle school age or younger. When he formed his family, he had been recently released from prison. I bet he even lost count of which time in the clink this was, but... He got followers because basically he would approach sad women and play his guitar. And really, he took the Summer of Love 1967 in Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco to his advantage because he was like, life is love and my guitar will bring you to salvation. And he would act like he was like a magical creature and he would get these people who are mostly like runaways or otherwise people with issues. Like obviously the people that were in this club who were minors, they were runaways, but other ones were just lost people that felt that this man was Jesus Christ. And if you're wondering why they thought that, it's because Manson acted like he was Jesus Christ. He would make little implications about it. And these people were like, oh my God, it's him. I found him. This combined with isolation, at the time of the murders, they lived at a place called Spawn Ranch, which was an abandoned movie set in Chatsworth, California, which is probably like 30 minutes to an hour outside of the city. They conned a blind man who owned the ranch to let them all stay there, and he had the girls giving him sexual favors. They all lived there, away from everybody else, living their eccentric countercultural existence, It seemed as though the beginning goal was for them to be peace and love hippies, but it turned into they kind of killed the hippie movement because these hippies turned out to be killers. I guess they never really were hippies, but I do believe that Charles Manson got his followers under the guise of being sort of a spiritual guru hippie type, especially because he, like I said, capitalized on the summer of love. Like I said, the group was caught for these murders because... Susan Atkins couldn't keep her mouth shut. She was just in some county jail. I can't, I think it was because of the Hinman murder, which I previously mentioned, which is unrelated, but a different murder. She was in prison for that. And she was talking about the Tate murders and how she killed Sharon Tate and had all these details. So then one of her fellow inmates informed the authorities and everybody was caught. Otherwise, they may have never been caught. At the time of the arrest of the majority of the gang, they were hiding out at Barker Ranch, which was their new home in Death Valley because they were hiding from the race war apocalypse and just waiting for their time to come back and be the rulers of civilization per their leader, Charles Manson. The three main women, Sadie, Katie, and Leslie, were tried together, which I think was a huge mistake. And I don't think that a mistake like that has been made since because they literally saw the trial as a play. They literally called it a play. They would do all kinds of theatrics. They would shout out. They would all start chanting something. They'd be in the same courtroom also with Charles Manson. I guess the the four of them were actually co-defendants and Tex, for whatever reason, was tried separately. Linda was not charged because she was the star witness and basically helped bring the case altogether and she didn't actually kill anyone she actually fled the family about two days after these murders happened and took her daughter and just ran i think she was scared 
Vincent Bugliosi was the prosecutor and he did a phenomenal job. He wrote Helter Skelter, which is one of my favorite books of all time. It is a comprehensive review of this entire case, the entire Manson family, the origins, their crimes, the themes. He did a really good job with maintaining the integrity of the court despite the theatrics. One time Manson held up while Linda was testifying, he held up a newspaper. The front of it said, Manson guilty, Nixon says. And he showed it to the jury, trying to get a mistrial declared. It didn't work. One day, the four of them all came to the courtroom with shaved heads and little X's carved into their foreheads. He said, I X you out of my life. He one time even attacked the judge. Something that Manson would like to do is go on these incoherent rants. I definitely want Chloe's opinion about his mental health and state of mind because it was very word salady to me. But the judge at a certain point was like, I'll have you removed. And then Manson says, I'll have you removed. I have my own little system. And after a little bit more back and forth, he literally jumps over the table with like a pen or a pencil and charges at the judge. And this little man needs to be restrained by like at least two officers and taken away. It was just a crazy event. And I don't think anything like it has really happened since, probably because of better regulations. There's more ordering courts nowadays but anyway everybody was found guilty and they were sentenced to death which was later changed to life because the death penalty was taken away in california it was considered unconstitutional charles manson died a few years ago susan atkins died in 2009 she was denied compassionate release leslie van houten and katie aka patricia cranewinkle are in the same prison patricia cranewinkle is the longest incarcerated woman in california in history they have both been granted the opportunity to be released on parole, but the California governor has reversed that decision. That's his power to veto it. So it's been a long time that they've been in prison, but they were involved in something really, really bad. And even though they were like, I think that Leslie was like 19 years old and Patricia was like 21. It's unforgivable. And I don't blame the powers that be for making that decision. John Waters is a huge Leslie Van Houten supporter. He made an article about it a while back that I recommend. Just Google John Waters and Leslie Van Houten. He like dedicated one of his films to the three women and had this interest in Leslie. And I guess I kind of know what that's like. I'm into dark things. And I guess he felt compelled to write to her. And they're like friends. And he tries to help her get out, but it, it never works. Tex is still alive and he's still in prison as well. <laughs> 